Sing with me. Water you turned into wine. Open the eyes of the blind. There's no one like you. None like you. Into the darkness you shine. Out of the ashes we rise. There's no one like you. None like you. Our God is greater. Our God is stronger. God, you are higher.
This is my story. This is my song. Praise it, my Savior, all the day long. This is my story. This is my past few weeks we've been having some testimonies by our deacons just getting to letting you get to know them some of the deacons that are rotating on and and uh, letting letting you know what they're going through in their spiritual lives and what the Lord's been teaching them and it occurred to our deacon chairman John Ferrer that whereas our ministers stand up and preach Sunday after Sunday and do Bible studies and devotions and that kind of thing seldom do they have the the format or the opportunity to talk about themselves and their own testimony and, and what God has been doing in their lives. So we're going to do that, introducing our faith stories. You remember years ago, we used to have faith stories in this service, and we want to resume that. And if God's been doing something in your life, let us know, and we'll line up that faith story too. But we're going to start off with our ministers, and John Hughes is going to come and just kind of share what God's been doing in his life. Good morning, everybody. A famous quote by a famous person really impacted my life. And that quote goes something like this. If you're so smart, you go ahead and do it your way. And I can remember that being said to me when I was about six years old by my dad when he threw a very firm chest pass to me out in the backyard playing basketball. That was basically my life goal growing up was I wanted to play basketball. Now, I don't know what your goal was. Many of you, we've all had dreams. Maybe you wanted to be... Do you ever want to be a doctor, Gary? Maybe you wanted to be a doctor, or you wanted to be a lawyer. Lynn, do you ever want to be a lawyer? Sure you did. No, you didn't. You became one, though. But anyway, we have these dreams. All of us have dreams. And some of us achieve the dreams, some of us don't. But regardless of that, we all realize that just these activities in themselves 
don't really bring us fulfillment. When I was about 13 years old, growing up in, in Albany, Georgia, we went to, to First Baptist Church over there, went through all the activities. But in all honesty, I don't see how it had any genuine relevance to my everyday life of just going to school and my friends. But I had this little friend, and she and her family had this extraordinary enthusiasm for God. And as I hung out with them, it kind of piqued my curiosity because we were going to the same church, but yet they had this kind of enthusiasm or joy that I didn't really experience. As a result of my curiosity, I ended up talking to our pastor. And I'll never forget, he asked the question or basically said, you know, bottom line, it comes down to your relationship with God. Do you really love the Lord? And I was like, what, what? And he said, you don't have all the shots. You don't have it all together. You need to trust Jesus. He loved you enough to die on the cross for you, and, and you've got to be willing to trust him. I remember he said something that I'll always sticks with me. He said, you can trust Christ right now without batting an eye. I always thought you had to have this huge emotional experience, but what he was saying is it was a commitment of your heart. And that morning, as he was sharing that, I did have an emotional experience in the sense of going, if I trust Christ, I admit, I can't do this on my own. I admit that I really need him, and I'm dependent on the grace of God. On that morning, I gave my life to Christ, and for the next four years, I tried my best to be a Christian. You know, as a teenager, you know if you're a Christian, you're supposed to be good. So I tried to quit using foul language. I tried to, you know have a better relationship with my family, etc. But after about four years, I was frustrated. It wasn't until I began to attend a Bible study that I heard Galatians 2.20. It says, but I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. And for me, the light turned on. I began to realize, not completely then, but I began to realize that the Christian life was not my strenuous effort, but it was Christ who was living through me. And that's when I began to honestly see my life change, you know, language and attitudes. That summer, I worked in Florida, and uh, we were playing basketball with a bunch of guys down there. And a strange thing began to happen in my life. I realized that competitive edge that had driven me so much in sports, it began to fade, and it was scary because I was entering my senior year in high school. But I realized something at that point, that Jesus Christ wanted to be first above everything. And I began to yield my life to him. Thanks for this opportunity to share this morning, and that's one of the joys about worship. We celebrate the Lord, but we also celebrate what he's doing in our lives. Look forward to hearing from you all this in the coming weeks. Thank you, John. Ken Hall is going to come and lead us in our offertory prayer. Let us pray. Good morning, Lord. We thank you for this opportunity to be here this morning. And Lord, I'd just like to thank you for the opportunity, take this opportunity to just thank you, Lord, for answering a prayer that we've been praying for for quite some time, and that's the rain that you've sent upon our land. God, it seems so good to, to ride around the countryside and the profession I'm in, Lord, and being a farmer, I notice these kind of things and to see things that I haven't seen in, in several years, and that's to see the, 
the rivers running and the creeks running and ponds overflowing. Lord, the water that we most desperately need, Lord, to survive, you've granted us that prayer. You've given us that, and we thank you. And Lord, this morning as we continue this service, Lord, I pray that just as the rain fell, that your spirit will fall upon this place and it will flow just like the creeks and the rivers that are flowing in our community. Lord, we just take now this time to, to take up the tithes and offers, and Lord, I pray your blessings upon it. Lord, that it be used to, to further your kingdom in this community, Lord, and around this world, in Christ's name, amen.
Thanks, guys. Good. Well, it's President's Day weekend, and I know the schools are out Friday and Monday, and folks are traveling, but it's good to see you here. This is the first Sunday in the Christian season called Lent. Lent is the seven-week period, beginning with, I guess, Mardi Gras and Ash Wednesday, leading up to Easter. It's a seven-week preparation for Easter, so it doesn't allow us just to rush to the cross and the resurrection then rush on by but it helps us prepare for it mentally and and spiritually and emotionally and do what we have to do to get ready so I'm always interested in sermon series especially seven week series to prepare for Lent and and the one that that I've been praying about several weeks now is a series on the letters to the church churches in Revelation there's seven churches that John writes letters to as a revelation from God And it's in Revelation 2 and 3. Revelation 1 is kind of like an introduction to uh, his his apocalypse. And he talks about the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show his servants what must soon take place. And he made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John. John is in exile on an island called Patmos, which is out in uh, the, the eastern edge of the Mediterranean Sea. And from there, he can... He can imagine Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey now. And, and the cities that have churches there, there's seven cities kind of in a, in a circle, and he's, he's thinking about them, and God has given him a revelation to, to give to them. And that's what he's writing down in Revelation 2 and 3. So we're going to look at a different church every Sunday for the next seven Sundays. There's a map. He's in Patmos. You see the island in the middle of the sea, and... It goes to, we're going to start with Ephesus and then go around and and, uh, those seven cities, those seven churches are crucial in a a pagan, worldly environment. And as you might imagine, in the first century, all the things that are happening in those churches, all the dangers, all the crises, all the heresies, all the idolatries that can creep in to that kind of world are doing so. And so John has this revelation and he's going to preach it and he's going to, to warn that he's going to commend the churches. There's a pattern. He, he introduces the church. He tells who he is, where his revelation from. He commends them for what they're doing well. And then he challenges them where they're weak. And I, as I read that, I think, you know, there's no perfect church. And even though these letters were written to churches 2000 years ago in Asia Minor, there are things that we can learn from it too. And so that's what I want us to look at over the next seven weeks. What were the churches in uh, Asia Minor struggling with 2,000 years ago? And how does that relate to us? How is it relevant to what we need to learn and do in the 21st century in Tifton, Georgia? Revelation 2, 1 through 7 is his message to the first church, the church at Ephesus. 
To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. We're told right above that in the end of chapter 1 that the golden lampstands represent the seven churches. So Christ is walking among the seven churches. And he writes to Ephesus, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear evil men, but have tested those who call themselves apostles, but are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. And here's the warning. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember then from what you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. There is an outline in your worship bulletin this morning to follow along. Let's pray as we, as we gather. God, we're here today to worship you. And in some ways, Lord, First Baptist Tifton is doing things great. In other ways, we're, we have our challenges and our opportunities and and, and things to improve on. And so I pray that over the next seven weeks, you will reveal to us our own weaknesses. You will reveal to us ourselves. Help us to see ourselves as you see us. As if Christ is walking among us, commending us where we do well, exhorting us where we can improve. And God, today specifically, help us to remember our first love the love that you have given us that resides in our hearts, our love for you, O God. Because even if we work with our sleeves rolled up from dawn till setting sun, if we do so without love, we accomplish nothing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The sermon is entitled, Drifting into Mediocrity, and it's based on the church at Ephesus, Revelation 2, 1 through 7. You know, the book of Revelation is is often ignored because it has obscured and veiled language. You know, let's just be honest, it has monsters appearing in it. One coming out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, another one rising up out of the earth with lamb's horns and a dragon's voice, and there's thunder and lightning and hail and fire and blood and smoke and all these bizarre kinds of images. And to a young Christian, it can be frightening, it can be intimidating. And so a lot of folks kind of veer away from Revelation, but there are a lot of reasons why we should not do so. It says in Revelation 1.1 that this is a revelation of God to the church. And later on, in a few verses down, it promises blessings to those who read it aloud and to those who hear it. And then at the end of Revelation, it says that that, uh, there's a warning to anyone who either tries to add anything to it or take away anything from it. And then over the past 2,000 years, this book has been a great challenge and comfort to Christians of every generation. So there's every reason in the world why we should look at Revelation and yet often avoid it because it is strange and because the imagery and the, 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 the visions in it are, are so foreign to us. 
We'll talk about that a little bit later on. As I mentioned, chapter 1 is kind of like an introduction to the letter. It's how John is, is in exile on this, this island called Patmos. And about 12 years ago, Susan and Catherine and I were on a tour, and we actually went to Patmos. And it's, this, it's, a, it's a stone, uh, just an outcropping in, in the eastern part of the Mediterranean Sea. And I got to stand in the grotto. It's not really a cave where John lived and where he received his revelation. It's just kind of a, uh, an area that's been cut out. Uh, in granite, and I, you know, I put my hand on the on the granite top of it, and it had been rubbed smooth from pilgrims, I guess, who would come along and and uh, put their hands there, and, and then underneath, you know, I could just envision John lying there and looking out toward the east, toward this this glassy sea that surrounded him that he talks about, and and see those churches in in Turkey now, Asia Minor, and think about what their struggles are, what they're going through. And God gives him this powerful vision. God gives him this, this insight to write down, to let them know, yes, you're doing some things well, but you're failing here. And if you don't, if you don't turn away from what you're doing, you're heading down a dead end and it's not going to end up well. So listen to the church at Ephesus is what John is saying. Now, Ephesus is not the capital of Asia Minor, but it is its most important city. It's on the sea coast, right there on the edge of the, of, the, of the sea. And there are several trade routes from the north and from the east and from the south that converge at Ephesus. There's, there are rivers that, that come there. It is, it is a, a bustling environment. It is one of the wealthiest cities in that part of the world in that day. And so that's why he's, he writes to it first. There's not only wealth, there's also corruption, a lot of evil going on. There's commerce, business, and politics, and many religions. One of the most famous religions in Ephesus at that time, there was a temple to Diana there in Ephesus. It's called Artemis, the temple to Artemis in Acts 19, if you want to read that. When Paul goes to Ephesus, he actually spends two years there, and he's preaching and teaching, and and this temple to Diana is in the background, and... uh, the silversmith named Demetrius makes silver idols to Diana, and he gets some other silversmiths together, and he says, this guy named Paul is preaching against us, and if we don't watch out, we're going to lose our trade, making our silver idols. And so Demetrius is the one who raises up a riot against Paul, and they take him and almost uh, and kill him and his followers, but someone comes along and speaks a word of, of wisdom and peace, and the, the crowd dissipates. But all this is going on. Diana is a huge temple. It took 250 years to build. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was a temple to the goddess of fertility. So all kinds of crazy and lewd behavior goes on within the temple. I was actually reading this past week that it also provided amnesty to criminals who could get into it. And not only into the temple, but within uh, an arrow shot, a bow shot, distance from it, if a criminal could get into that arena, then they would be safe from prosecution. So you can imagine all the criminals that, that ended up in the vicinity of this temple of Diana, this temple of Artemis in the Roman world. Um, a, a lot of money was taking place. It was like the bank in Ephesus. All the money was transferred in, in, in through this temple, and it was a wild place. And, and we also, on this tour, we also went to the amphitheater that is in Ephesus, and uh, it seated 50,000 people, um, had a stage, and Susan, you know, we're kind of wandering around, there's a couple thousand tourists just walking around this temple, I said, Susan, 
go sing on the stage. She said, no, I'm not going to do that. I said, yeah, yeah, go do it. So she walked out there and snapped her fingers a few times to kind of get where the acoustics were focused. And she started singing an Italian aria, Quando Men Vo, I think. And, and the people started, you know, they just, all the tourists just froze and looked at her. And I guess they thought they were filming something, but I was just cracking up over on the side. And uh, it was so much fun. It was amazing to me how you could hear her in that 50,000-seat amphitheater where they held the Pan-Ionian Games um, without any kind of public address system. The acoustics, these wooden, I mean, not wooden, but stone seats that were carved into the side of a hill, seating 50,000 was just, it was just amazing. Paul stayed there, as I said, two years on his second missionary journey. He stayed in Ephesus longer than any other city because of its importance, because of its prominence. It was a large, idolatrous city, and yet there was a small group of Christians who worshipped here. And they were, they were doing the best they could. Jesus comes along and he commends them in verses 2 and 3. I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear evil men and have tested those who call themselves apostles but are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. The Ephesians, the Ephesian Christians were doing pretty well. They were doing pretty well. And God was aware of that. He says, I know your works. God knows when we do well. And he knew the Ephesian Christians needed encouragement. It was a tough world. It was a difficult environment in which they were trying to be followers of Christ and be the Christian church. But if God knows when we do well, it naturally follows that God knows when we don't do so well. It always amazes me that, you know, that we don't always realize that God is listening to everything we say. He's, he's watching everything we do. He is aware of everything. I heard a story about a fellow who brought a, a new friend up to his morning coffee group. You know, every morning about 9 o'clock, guys meet. They meet here in Tifton like that, all over the place, drinking coffee and solving all the world's problems. And uh, this fellow in a small town brought his new friend up, and the guys were sitting around drinking coffee. And before he could introduce his new friend, everybody around the coffee group started into an argument. And, and Ken, I guess they were farmers, because they were saying, you know, I don't care, and, and expletives were flying, I don't care what sensor thing you think, you are one blankety-blank crazy person. If you think that crazy blank thing will work here, and you go back and tell your blank friends what I said and tell them to put them in their blankety-blank pipe and smoke it. And before they could go any further, the man said, I'd like to introduce you all to our new pastor here in town. And they all scattered. As I was, and let me tell you, you know, when I walk up and people are kind of mumbling and whispering and they scatter, I walk up, it happens all the time, I'm going... What were y'all talking about? You know, why, why do I make you nervous? Because someone much more important than a preacher is watching and listening to everything that we say and do. Nothing escapes his notice. Nothing escapes his attention. And he could say to us what he said to the Ephesian Christians, I know your deeds. I know your works. Some of them are good. You're doing well in some areas. In some areas, you have challenges. He said, you have persevered, verse 3, for my name's sake. You have persevered for my name, for my name's 
sake. In other words, they labored faithfully, they remained pure, and they did so for the right motive. They did so. Their motivation was because they did it in the name of the Lord. They did it for His name. And there's no other reason for doing good, for, for doing good works, for, for following and being faithful to God for my name's sake. God's saying, but He still has one thing against them. Verse 4, I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love. You have lost your first love. That's what the church at Ephesus is known for, unfortunately. You've done well, but you have lost your first love. You have abandoned the love you had at first. They'd fallen far from their heights of early devotion and descended into the plain of mediocrity. In our Baptist vernacular, they were backsliders. They had backslidden. You hear that all the time, don't you? You're a backslider. Well, what was their first love? Well, whenever they talk about love, usually in the Bible, in the Old Testament, it's God's love for Israel. In the New Testament, it's Jesus' love for the church, the bride of Christ. So somehow or another, this church has probably lost its initial love for Jesus, their devotion to Him, and they have fallen into a long, silent comfortable routine. They have drifted into mediocrity. And that's so easy to do. It's so easy to do. It happens in our marriages. How do you maintain the same white-hot love and devotion for your spouse that you had when you were first married? It happens in our spiritual lives. How do you maintain that, that same kind of passion that John's talking about, that enthusiasm that you see in the lives of others. How do you maintain that in the long run? What happens is the coals kind of ebb and flow and, and they, they dim over time. And, and even though you can look back on a time when you knew your love for Jesus, when you were spending time with Him, when you're in your quiet time, when it was in the most important part of the day, and, and then those days get further and further between, and then it's happened where you're not having them at all, and Maybe you're just going through the motions and you're just coming to church and it really doesn't impact you anywhere else in life. And you look back to those days when you were first saved, when you first rededicated your life, when you first recommitted your life and, and what it was like to follow God and walk with Him closely and personally and, and talk to Him regularly. And now here you are and it's like you're, you're almost strangers. What happened? They labored. They had lost their love. And you remember last week, the Sunday before Valentine's, we talked about if you can do a lot of great things, but if you do it without love, you accomplish nothing. You, you do absolutely nothing. What did they, you know, what did they, maybe they quit winning the lost to Christ. When you stop loving God, when you stop loving Jesus, you don't care as much about talking about Him with your friends. Maybe those pagans walking down the street around them in Ephesus, they didn't love anymore. They didn't, want to, they didn't want to win them to the Lord. They just let them go about their own business. And if we here at First Baptist Tifton can go through all the motions of being the church, but we lose our love for others, we lose our love for God, then Jesus will say to us what He said to the Ephesian Christians, I have this against you. You have lost your first love. And you've drifted into mediocrity. What's the danger of that? I'll tell you what the danger is because I, I see it happening with church members all the time. 
We put church members come in and they're excited and they're fired up. And the first thing we do is we put them on committees and we put them to work and they roll up their sleeves and they go to work and, and, and a year passes and another year passes and, and soon they're working themselves to death and, and, and eventually it happens. You burn out. You just burn out because over time, if your motivation is not for the name of the Lord, if your motivation is not love for God, I mean, you can generate the energy to work for a time, but after a while, it'll burn out because that motivation, that power, that, that energy can't come from yourself. It can come only from the Lord. And that's why you have to stay connected to Him. That's why you have to be empowered by Him. And that's why you have to be in love with Him. Because if you work and serve and do everything that's good for any other reason than your love for Him, you will soon run dry, running on your own batteries, running on your own energy. So what does Jesus say to do? He doesn't leave us without an answer. He gives us a solution. Remember then from what you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. Real simple. Remember, repent, recommit. Remember what you used to do. Remember those days when your relationship with Jesus was so important and you had that quiet time and you you worshiped, but it wasn't just going through the motions. You were really into it and And remember what it was like to talk to your friends about Jesus. And remember what it was like to to serve Him out of a love that was without limit, that that had no, no bottom at all. It just kept overflowing and filling. Remember what it was like. Repent. Say, God, I have fallen from there. I'm not there anymore. I want to go back. Please, please help me. And then recommit yourself to him. Remember what you once did. Recommit to the faith that you've already made, to the love that you already have. Say, God, fill me again with your love. I can't do this apart from you. I'm just going through the motions here. Outwardly, everybody thinks everything's fine, but on the inside, I know my relationship with you is faltering. So help me, Lord, and start doing those things once more that you once did. And if you do that, Jesus has a promise. To him who conquers, in verse 7, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. The tree of life represents eternal life. It's it's mentioned uh, later on in Revelation. And the paradise is not just a beautiful garden. It is fellowship, eternal fellowship with God. If you return to your first love, that love for God that brought you unto him, and that empowered everything you do, then the work that you're doing today will be an overflow of that love. And you won't have to generate it anymore out of your own energy and strength and power. It'll come because you love Him, and you know He loves you. You'll do it because He died on the cross for you. And that love that He has placed in your heart will empower you to do everything that He's calling you to do. I couldn't have asked for a better illustration this week of what I'm trying to say than what the Carnival Cruise Line has offered me on a silver platter. The Carnival Cruise Line Triumph, you have been following it this week. You know what happened. It was on a cruise out in the middle of the Gulf of Mexico, had an engine fire, disabled, 
drifting aimlessly for five days. The people on board were furious. Four tugboats came, tied lines to it, and eventually it drifted. They were going to take it to, on to Mexico, but I think it drifted northward about 90 miles, and so it was closer on to the Bay of, of uh, Mobile, and they towed it on up to Mobile, and the other night it finally arrived, and the people, I was seeing them get off the boat and lie, you know, get down on their hands and knees and kiss the ground they were walking on. <clears throat> what, that, what that story tells to me is that drifting aimlessly leads to danger. And that's what happens in our Christian lives. As you're you're on your voyage for God, you either need to be one of two places. If you're in a harbor, then you need to be taking on resources. You need to be getting your tanks full. You need to be bringing on all the food and, and all the resources you need because your purpose is not to sit in the harbor. Your purpose as a ship for God is to go out into the sea. And when you go out into the sea, you better have your engines running because if they quit and you drift aimlessly, you'll be lost and you'll fall into mediocrity. But with your engines running and the resources you have fueled by the love that you have for God, your first love, then you'll be able to go where you need to go and do what you need to do and fulfill the purpose as a follower of God for which you were created. Apart from that, you're just drifting aimlessly. Apart from that, if you're just sitting in a harbor, which, you know, I kind of equate to being in church. We come in church. This is not where we serve. This is where we get our batteries charged. This is where we take on fuel. This is where we get our resources, where we get our energy, where we get our strength, where we're reminded of God's love. But our purpose is not just here to worship. Our purpose is to go outside this, the, the safety of this harbor and, and set sail and serve God and do what he's called us to do. And to the extent that we do that, God will say, I know your works. You're doing them in my name. And it's going to be okay. And his, he, he will be empowering us and fueling us and taking us where we need to be. And we won't be drifting aimlessly in some ocean lost somewhere. Knowing that we have a reason, but not remembering what it was. Because our first love has grown cold. I don't know where you are in your Christian life, but, you know, in my own life, it's, it, you know, honestly, it is a series of ups and downs. I wish I could say I lived on the mountaintop all the time, but that's not the case. And when I am down in the valley, you know, I've got to remind myself of my first love and what God did for me and what I was doing to remain close to Him and pick up those disciplines and those practices once again and let Him fill me with His Spirit. Say, God, I can't do this apart from You. Spend some time thinking about what he's done for you on the cross. Spend some time thinking about what he's done for you in the resurrection. Spend some time thinking about what he's done for you day in and day out. And let that love give you the power you need to serve him. Let's pray together. God, as we come together to worship you, we're here in the harbor right now and we're getting our batteries charged and getting our tanks full and 
taking on all the resources we need so that when we go out from here, God, we will remember what our first love is. And when we go out to serve you, it won't be under our own energy and our own generators, but it'll be the the engines that you have placed within us to go out into the, the sea and find folks who need you. And because our love for you is so great, then as a natural overflow, we won't have to force conversation or witnessing, but it'll just be an opportunity to talk to them about you and what you mean to us and and that contagious enthusiasm that they see in us, they'll want in their own lives. Father, let that be so. You know our works. Some of us are close to our first love. Some of us have lost it. Some of us are somewhere in between. But today, Lord, bring us back to you and remind us of how great a love you have for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to conclude with a...